Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the What in the Sam Hill podcast. I am your host and resident nerd, Erin. Join me for this journey into the secrets of the universe. So just a bit of a disclaimer before we start, I'm going to do my best to edit it out, but you may hear the buzz of my air conditioning behind me. It is currently 100 degrees outside, and even with my AC running, it's 80 degrees in my house. I don't want to turn off the system because of my animals, so instead I will beg for your forgiveness. This week, we are going to be talking about the Denver International Airport. As far as modern buildings go, this one might have the most conspiracy theories surrounding it. The theories vary and intertwine, but in general, the airport conspiracy theory has four parts. One, that the airport was built as part of the New World Order agenda. Two, that the airport was built as part of the Freemasonry agenda. Three, that the airport covers a deep underground military base, or DUM for short. And four, that the murals and other art on display in the airport show the true nature of the conspiracy. My research for this episode has been frustrating, to say the least. There is much conjecture online, but from what I can tell, very little evidence or independent research. It's mostly just the same claims repeated over and over without adding to the conversation. That is further obscured by the fact that Denver International now uses the conspiracy theories as part of their marketing campaign, so everyone and their brother has done a supposed debunking of the claims where they really don't say much of anything at all. Regardless, let's see what we can learn. Now for me, the key player in all of this is Federico Pena. Federico Pena was the mayor of Denver from 1983 to 1991 and he was responsible for setting the construction of the new airport in motion. He had originally campaigned on expanding the existing Stapleton Airport onto the grounds of Rocky Mountain Arsenal, but the residents of the neighboring Adams County protested vehemently against that, as it was going to increase the noisy air traffic over their homes. Instead, he is credited with negotiating a deal where Denver would annex a 54-square-mile tract of land in Adams County, away from any residential neighborhoods, in exchange for the support of the Adams County officials. Now, the airport didn't get built until the early 1990s, finally opening in 1995, and it had numerous issues at the beginning, especially with the new automated baggage system, but also coming in far over budget. People even called the airport Federico's Folly, but the baggage system was eventually scrapped after a decade of failure, and pre-pandemic DIA was the fifth busiest airport in the United States, behind Atlanta, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Dallas-Fort Worth. That bright light now shines on Pena in his role orchestrating the project, and the road from Denver to the airport is actually named after him. Pena is also credited with bringing the Colorado Rockies to Denver, with the expansion deal being struck just as Pena was leaving office. If there was going to be a new world order agenda to build this airport, in my opinion, Federico Pena would have to at least be involved, if not be an outright NWO plant. So let's take a look at his backstory and see if we can find any inconsistencies. 
Federico Fabian Pena was born in 1947 in Laredo, Texas, the third child of six for Gustavo Pena and Lucila Farias, a Chicano couple who had deep ties to the area, as Laredo was actually founded by Federico's fifth great-grandfather. His father was a cotton classer, which means he would inspect and grade cotton for sale, and his mother was a homemaker. It seemed that they lived a reasonably middle-class life. Young Federico played Little League with his younger brothers, Alfredo and Alberto, who were actually triplets with Sister Anna. He attended the Catholic Boys' School St. Joseph's Academy in Brownsville, Texas, and made honor roll. He went on to the University of Texas, Austin, where he participated in Young Democrats and graduated with a bachelor's degree in government in 1969 and a law degree in 1972. At this point, I need to enter an obligatory saw Varsity's horns off whoop on behalf of my grandfather. Pena remained in Texas only briefly after that, before moving to Denver in 1973, where he worked as a lawyer for the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. There, conflicts between the white and Chicano communities seem to have thrust him into the spotlight as he worked a few high-profile cases as well as advocated for bilingual education programs in the public schools. As a result, some of the members of the Colorado legislature approached him about running for office. In 1978, with the support of the Chicano community, he was elected to the Colorado State House as a Democrat. After just one term, he was then chosen as the House Minority Leader in 1980. At that point, he had a reputation as a local activist, and in 1982, he was approached by a group of people who convinced him to run for mayor of Denver. In 1983, he was elected mayor, defeating 14-year incumbent and fellow Democrat William McNichols and 10-year Denver District Attorney Dale Tooley. It was a Cinderella story win. As mayor in 1988, 41-year-old Pena married 30-year-old Harvard graduate Colorado law graduate and accomplished distance runner Ellen Hart, whose father was the dean of the New Mexico Law School. Pena served two terms as mayor before choosing not to run for re-election in 1991, quitting before the airport he fought so hard for was built. After leaving office, he started a money management firm, then became Clinton's Secretary of Transportation in 1993. As the Secretary of Transportation, he was responsible for negotiating with the Secretary of Defense to make GPS technology available to civilians. In 1997, he reluctantly became Secretary of Energy, a position he held for just over a year before joining the venture capital firm Vestar Capital Partners, supposedly in an effort to spend more time with his family. In 2001, the Peñas divorced, and a few years later, Peña married a reporter, Cindy Velasquez. Since leaving office, Pena has served as the campaign co-chair for Barack Obama in both 2008 and 2012, has been appointed to various philanthropic boards and committees, and has written a book. Looking at his story, I don't see any immediate red flags. He doesn't seem to be the cousin of anyone particularly famous. He doesn't seem to have been a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader or anything like that. But it does seem that periodically throughout his life, he got tapped to move up the political ladder. And it does seem that his fast track to success was facilitated. I find it extremely interesting that he seemed to be quite comfortable with the Washington Good Old Boys Club and the military in his time in the cabinet, despite being branded as an outsider. 
It would make sense if he was working with them during his mayoral career on the airport that the relationship would continue and flourish while he was in Washington. So while I don't see any big flashing neon sign that says, yep, new world order all over this guy, I can't rule it out either. By all outward appearances, Federico Pena seems to be just your average activist politician. And as a libertarian, that immediately makes me suspicious. But I want to make it clear that I found no evidence of wrongdoing on his part. Now, in regards to the murals and other art at the Denver airport, I honestly don't put too much stock in any of it. Modern art is so weird, y'all. People pay money to see a banana nailed on the wall. And Leo Tanguma, who is responsible for many of the murals, cites his first mural as a chalkboard drawing he did in fifth grade of murdering the local sheriff. I think few artists are sane people, and an infinite number of people will come to an infinite number of interpretations when looking at these murals. Tanguma claims his work chronicles the oppression of non-white peoples, conspiracy theorists see conspiracy themes. To me, these are just Rorschach tests. People see what they want to see. The one piece of art that has an interesting story to me is actually not a part of the conspiracy, as it was not installed until 2008. It's a 32-foot-tall, 9,000-pound, aqua-blue, rearing Mustang with glowing red eyes, nicknamed Blucifer. And while it isn't a plant by the New World Order, it might be cursed. During construction, the head fell off the horse onto the artist Luis Jimenez. I've seen varying reports as to whether he was crushed or his artery was sliced, but either way, he was killed by his creation. So it's not related, but it is interesting. Another major aspect of the airport conjecture is the idea of underground bunkers or even a full-blown underground military base. One thing to keep in mind with this is the extreme level of infrastructure needed for an airport, most of which has to be below ground to maximize space available for planes. Pre-pandemic, Denver was handling almost 70 million passengers per year, which is 190,000 people per day, not including all of the flight crews, flight support staff, retail and food service staff, and other employees. Just in electrical infrastructure alone, you would need enough electricity to power a city the size of Birmingham, Alabama, and all of that infrastructure would have to be underneath the airport. Now add water, sewer, fire alarm, sprinkler systems, HVAC systems, snow melting systems, communication systems, access control and security systems, etc, etc, etc. Not to mention the train tunnels for transporting people between terminals and just room for the staff itself to operate. I know, for example, that the Atlanta airport has a city's worth of infrastructure below ground because I know people that have actually worked on it. There are tunnels for miles, and it is such a complex system that the average person just cannot understand it. I think most conspiracy theorists have absolutely no idea how much utility infrastructure is required for a place like that. Heck, I work in the construction industry, and I can tell you that most people who work in the construction industry don't even realize how much room is required. On top of utilities and train service, Denver also has an entire underground baggage management system that is sitting there collecting dust because it was such a failure. And I have seen conspiracy theorists use that as evidence of nefarious activities. They claim that people shut down the baggage system in 2005 so they could use it to haul other things around the airport. 
Honey, look back at the newspaper archives. That system was nothing but problems for 10 years. It was part of the reason the airport couldn't open on time in 1994. It was constantly breaking. Luggage was literally getting launched in the air off the trolleys. If they're using that to transport other goods, those other goods are getting destroyed. They tried something that had never been done before, it didn't work, and it took them a decade to finally give up. Another reasonable explanation is that some of the tunnels were built for the sake of future-proofing. If they pre-built tunnels under taxiways, for example, it wouldn't be necessary to tear up the taxiway if they wanted to build another connecting building in the future. Given that they were leaving the cramped quarters of Stapleton, they may have wanted to include some future-proofing to prevent the same problems down the road. Actually, planning for the future is something we absolutely do in the construction industry, so I would not be surprised if this is the case. I've also seen claims of five buildings that were supposedly built in the wrong place and just buried instead of being torn down, thus proof of an underground bunker. This claim comes from a supposed whistleblower, which I'm always skeptical of because anyone can claim they're a whistleblower. And the physical proof of this theory isn't an actual blueprint. It scribbles on a napkin. If they were really involved, why don't they have actual blueprints or pictures or something tangible? Also, if those buildings were placed on the wrong area and that area actually needed to be regraded, why not just bury the buildings instead of paying for both the destruction and the regrading on a project that was already over budget? On top of that, five little buildings does not a state-of-the-art bunker make. The NORAD underground facility at Cheyenne Mountain outside Colorado Springs is 15 three-story buildings, and it was built 30 years before the Denver airport. Not to mention that Cheyenne Mountain is an hour and a half driving from the Denver airport. So really like a 15 minute hop, skip and a jump by helicopter, it doesn't seem practical or even reasonable to build an advanced bunker so close to an already existing and accessible bunker. But really, if five rectangles and some dotted lines scribbled on a napkin is your only evidence of an underground bunker, I'm really gonna need you to try harder. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of the conspiracy theory is the dedication plaque, which had a dedication from both the Prince Hall Masons and the ancient Free and Accepted Masons, as well as the ominously named New World Airport Commission. Now, it's no surprise that the Masons would be involved in the dedication. First of all, it's a big public building, and they are a group of builders, even if just nominally so. Second of all, Wellington Webb, the mayor of Denver at the time of the airport's opening, is himself a Prince Hall Mason, so I would be shocked if the Masons didn't put their seal on something in the airport. The New World Airport Commission is more intriguing. It was a charity used to raise corporate money for the airport's grand opening festivities, which happened in September 1993, when the airport was originally scheduled to open, well before the myriad of delays finally allowed the airport to operate. It was organized by Charles Ansbacher, who had been the conductor and musical director for the Colorado Springs Symphony from 1970 to 1989, and had also been tasked by Federico Pena with organizing the art for the airport. If the art is part of the conspiracy, this is probably how. Ansbacher named the commission himself, and it's the name that is curious to conspiracy theorists. Of course, it invokes thoughts of the New World Order, 
but it was named rather for the New World Symphony, written by Czech composer Antonin Dvorak, a student of the famous Johannes Brahms. Dvorak wrote the piece in the 1890s based on his travels to America and with influences from both Native American and African American music. The new world of the symphony's name is simply America, but the symphony does have a curious history. It was one of two obscure songs requested by Neil Armstrong to be on the cassette tapes taken on the Apollo 11 mission, mixed in with the normal pop music you would expect. The other obscure song was Music Out of the Moon by theremin player Dr. Samuel J. Hoffman. The moon landing, of course, has its own cloud of conspiracy, so I find it extremely interesting that there is a connecting thread between the two conspiracies, however obscure that thread may be. Charles Ansbacher was also quite the character himself. In addition to being an orchestral conductor, he was involved in government. He was a White House Fellow in 1976, where he worked with the Department of Transportation on bringing art into mass transit. His wife was Texas oil heiress Swanee Hunt, who was also the U.S. ambassador to Austria under Clinton. His parents, doctors Heinz and Rowena Ansbacher, were devotees and associates of famed psychologist Alfred Adler, who was friends with Leon Trotsky, of all people. It's quite the origin story. The real question about the plaque, though, is why, despite obvious evidence to the existence of the New World Airport Commission, the Denver Airport website claims that the commission never existed. Seriously. This is a quote from their website regarding the claim that the airport was built by the New World Order. People think this because a dedication marker and plaques around the airport claim it was funded by the New World Airport Commission. Never heard of them? Don't feel left out. It seems no one has. After some digging, it was discovered that no such group exists. Not now, not when the airport was built, not ever. So rather than writing it off as nothing, people have jumped to the conclusion that it is actually a group within the New World Order. Now, I'm not sure what digging they did, because the Denver Post Archives and the Denver Library Archives aren't exactly hard places to find, but this strikes me as either an incompetent intern wrote this, or they're trying to distance themselves from the commission. I'm leaning towards trying to distance themselves, because you can't tell me that an intern wrote marketing copy for the airport website without anyone above them reviewing and improving their work. So, is there something weird going on at the Denver airport? Well, I could probably look over some of the coincidences, if not for the fact that the airport obviously isn't being forthright about the situation. I think most of the airport theories that you see on the interwebs put too much weight on conjecture and not enough weight on receipts. But I also think that there is a lot of curiousness in the airport's beginnings. And quite frankly, the fact that we have so many Clinton officials involved in this airport's founding means I don't really trust any of this as far as I can throw it. Unfortunately, it's going to take way more than a week to sort through all of the silt kicked up by the airport using this for marketing material, and no true investigation could ever really be done from a computer 1,500 miles away from Denver. As such, I can't say for sure there's an underground base built by the New World Order under the Denver airport, but I can say there are enough oddities and coincidences to make me want to know more. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. This was super interesting to me because I have flown into Denver several times, both for skiing and for volleyball tournaments as a kid. 
I'm actually probably one of the last generation to have flown into Stapleton, but it would have been when I was about two, so I don't remember it. I do remember, though, when it was nothing but fields of snow for miles and miles and miles between the new airport and Denver. Now it's all built up and you really can't even tell that the airport was built so far away. Anyway, if you have any theories or episode requests, you can find me via Substack, Twitter, Instagram, email, or even snail mail. Until next time, in the immortal words of Euripides, question everything, learn something, answer nothing. I will see you next week with an episode on the Boggy Creek Monster. Stay tuned and have a lovely week.